Father, we ask for your blessing upon your word as it goes out. The encouragements that we can receive from it are beyond measure in this life. We know that your word has benefit not only for this life, but the life to come. The things that we learn here, the testings that we go through. Father, we don't ask to be removed from the trials that you have set before us, but we ask that you would give us the grace and the strength to endure so that we might reach full maturity, that we might do what you have asked. And help us, Lord, when we fail, pick us up, dust us off, set us on our feet again, for we know your love for us is great and your grace is just as great. So speak to us through your word, Lord. Instruct us. Let us know what your will is for us, we who are your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We left off in verse 37, so I'm going to pick it up in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 12. (coughs) Lord willing, this week we'll get to the end of the chapter. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. They wanted to see a sign that still, and they still would not accept Jesus as Messiah, even if they saw the sign. There's people like that, like, show me. And if Jesus would have done a miracle, for instance, if Jesus would have been there and they're, they're seeking after a sign to like do a miracle to show us that you're the Messiah. If Jesus would have had fire fall down from heaven and consume somebody or something, those people still would not have believed. They were just kind of pushing him to the nth degree, making everybody see or trying to make everybody see that. See, he can't even do a simple miracle when in fact we just went through a couple of chapters where Jesus did all of these miracles and they were upset that he was doing them on the Sabbath with which they thought was work. And Jesus, you know, he didn't do a miracle. He told them a wicked and adulterous generation looks after a sign or a miracle out there. He said, but I will give you a sign. And the sign was the word. The sign was the Bible. The sign was the Old Testament. The first one was, of course, Jonah. There is also this idea that they would still not believe that there was a miracle. If you remember in the Gospel of Luke, we have Abraham's bosom and the rich man and Lazarus. And I'll go into that a little bit more. But the rich man (coughs) simply wanted Abraham to send somebody back from the dead to tell his neighbors and his family and his friends that they needed to repent. And if somebody came back from the dead, surely they would believe somebody who rose from the dead, right? Well, he said no. Abraham told him no. They wouldn't believe it even if there was a miracle. And so they were a wicked, he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign when they wouldn't even believe the simple words that were before them. People reject truth all the time. And, and by the way, people who seek after miracles, who seek after signs, they are open to deception. And there are whole church movements that are doing that. One of them is Bethel. I don't know if you're familiar with Bethel Church. Phil Johnson and all of that. And I I hesitate not to talk about that because people are being deceived as to what's going on and practices are being encouraged that, and they think that their signs and their wonders and their miracles. And that's the only reason why people show up. And I have found also through my Christian walk that those people who seek after their signs or those signs like that 
tend to be weak spiritually. They don't tend to be strong because they don't have the word. And the word is what the sign or the miracle is supposed to be. I want to give you an example of this that is out there. Somebody seeking after signs, seeking after miracles, seeking after wonders. There is this thing that is called now grave sucking. Exactly. Or grave soaking or mantle grabbing. Who in here has heard of that? No one has heard of that. This is the latest thing that is coming out of churches like Bethel. And what they believe they need to do is they go to a grave of an individual that was a spiritual giant in the days of old. And if they spread themselves out upon that grave, they believe that there is an abandoned spirit in that grave. And if they are on the grave and they lay there, they try to, it's the grave sucking, sucking the spirit out of the body of the individual that is in the grave. Individuals like C.S. Lewis, D.L. Moody, uh, Charles Finney. And this is being encouraged in the Christian church. And they say, you will you will grab hold of the spirit that has been abandoned and you will become a powerful witness for God. Now, where is that in scripture? Well, they have a scripture. Now, you should probably turn there. Second Kings chapter 13. Second Kings chapter 13. And this has to do with Elisha's tomb. Now, you remember there was Elijah and there was Elisha. Elijah performed these wonderful miracles. It was great. And Elisha was told by Elijah, okay, you stay here. And Elisha said, no, I will not leave you because he knew he was going to be taken by God that particular day. And he says, you know, I'm I'm going to stick by your side. And Elisha said, I will be with you no matter what. And Elijah told him, well, if you're with me, you'll get a double portion of the blessing that I've received. And Elisha did double the amount of miracles that Elijah did. Well, when Elisha died, they took his bones. Normally what they would do is they'd put the body in a sepulcher. And in that sepulcher, they would allow the body to rot. And after the body would rot, they'd take the bones and they'd put it in an ossuary, a box is what they would do. Well, in one of these cases, I I guess the body was still decomposing. Elisha's body was still decomposing. And this is what happened. Verse 21 says, once while Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood on his feet. That's what they use as a justification for grave sucking. Now, in jest, I would say they're doing it wrong. They got to they got to touch the bones. They got to dig up the you know they need to be grave robbers and touch the bones and that type of thing. And you know it's just ridiculous things that people are getting involved in because they think it's the miraculous and we got to pursue the miraculous. And God said, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, seeks after a miracle. The miracle to us is the word of God which is Jesus Christ. And we don't have to seek after that sign. In these same churches, there's one case where, and the video's online, you can see it where they're all sitting around and the guy's up there preaching and all of a sudden this mist comes down from the ceiling. 
And they say, see, it's the Shekinah glory of God. Of course, up in there, I'm sure there was a little smoke machine that was producing the smoke that was coming down, and it was meant to deceive the people. And then there was another one. This other one had the gold from the streets of heaven came down from the ceiling, and all this gold glitter was there. And it was a miracle. And you see the faces of the people going, and it's a ruse. God, you know, God doesn't act like that. And, and why would he do that? Do you know why miracles actually take place? They take place because God wants to establish his word. Either the miracle happens and then the word comes, or the word comes, then the miracle happens. What was taking place in Matthew chapters 5 through 7? Jesus was teaching. What happened in the scriptures in Matthew chapter 8 through 9? The miracles happened. The miracles happened to buttress, to reinforce what was taking place in Matthew's chapter 5 through 7. Now, if you're out there preaching and you're teaching and you're ministering and a miracle takes place, great! I'm all behind that. If somebody receives their sight or their hearing, that is fantastic. But if you show up just looking for the miracles instead of an encouragement from the Word of God, you're there for the wrong reasons. And the person that does that tends to be shallow, not knowing the word of God, not knowing how to interpret properly or who misinterprets passages like in Second Kings. And so a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. We want to make sure that we are solid in the word, that we can discern the times in which we live. And by the way, the times that are coming, who's going to be doing the miracles? false prophets and if false prophets do the miracles and people are running after the miracles the message that comes after the miracles is not going to be biblical and people are going to flock to those who do miracles like that remember this guy down in brazil i don't know if you've paid attention in the last few months to what's going on uh john uh, his his name he goes by the name john he's like this healer guy um coughing up they're coughing up tumors and things like that down there and this guy's supposed to be great well he was just arrested because of uh sexual assaults on women that he was making and he has millions of dollars that people have been giving and the guy's a charlatan and they would go to see him just for the miracles or just for the healings and they were so deceived My prayer for all of you in here is that you're not deceived by those who claim to be Christians and yet they are false prophets. They seek to fleece the body of Christ. And there are lots of those out there. You have the word and you're able to discern with the Spirit of God what the word says and you're able to judge these things. So going on. So Jesus gives them a sign from the word. He answers a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miracle sign. Or a miraculous sign. But none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. So the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And this is a case where something that was in the Old Testament that had a secret meaning was revealed in the New Testament. Jonah, he was inside the belly of this fish, not a whale, but he was in this fish for three days. Now, if you're in the fish for three days... Do you think you're going to be alive the whole time? Probably not. You're going to die if you're in the belly of a big fish. Imagine a a 17-foot great white shark swallows you whole, doesn't even have to chomp, takes you right in. Do you think you're going to be inside his gullet, you know, and you're going to be all... uh, 
what am I doing in here? Yeah, no, you're going to die. You're going to asphyxiate. You're going to run out of oxygen. That's going to be the end of you. And that's what happened to Jonah. He died, was in the fish, and quote, unquote, he was not resurrected, but he was resuscitated. The fish burped him up on the beach, and he went over to Nineveh, and he preached the gospel. So three days in the belly of the fish, after three days, he came out. And Jesus says, that is the sign for you. And it was a secret that it was supposed to pertain to Jesus, but Jesus told us, this is a secret revealed. And that's the difference between a secret and a mystery. A mystery is something that was previously unknown, that could not be known. Like, for instance, the church is a mystery. was not talked about in the Old Testament. But it was revealed to us in the New Testament that God would have this bride. And it is the church. And it was never before conceived in the heart of man that God was going to do this. But the secret was revealed, but the truth of it was unknown. And that's the way it is with much of prophecy. So God gives this sign from the word. The men of Nineveh, in verse 41, will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus, (coughs) remember prior to this, one greater than Satan is here because he is the one to able to bind the strong man, as I talked about. So Jesus is greater than Satan. Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus is greater than Solomon. All of these things Jesus claims to be greater than. The Jews should have seen this if they understood the Old Testament at all. Jesus is coming along saying, I'm greater than them all. Now, he wasn't kind of doing it directly, but they certainly understood what he was communicating to them, that he was the Messiah. And you'll see later that they said, stop speaking to us in these words. Speak to us plainly. And Jesus has some words to say about that. We'll get to that. Verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. Now, first, is he talking about evil spirits? Is he talking about a house? This is metaphoric language. And you have to understand, well, he's not talking about a house, but the house is meant to represent the nation of Israel. Now, you might think, well, this is a non sequitur. Why is he talking about an evil spirit being cast out and coming back and taking seven more and going back in there and the end is worse than the beginning of this right after he says a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign? What he is, he is condemning the people that will not believe. Jesus was the light of the world. He came and brought cleansing to the nation of Israel. He brought healing. He brought light where there was darkness and where the evil was. He pointed it out and he called them, remember all the words he called the Pharisees? You brood of vipers, you snakes, you evil, you wicked people. He pointed it out. He made it clear to everybody. Do you think somebody who is just a regular Jew that wasn't part of the leadership would go up to the leaders of the Jews and say, you wicked bunch of people? No, John the Baptist did. And what happened? He lost his head as a result of it. And so nobody would say that, but Jesus stood up and he did this. He condemned the behavior of the religious leaders that were there. Then he goes on to say, you know, you people are like the individual 
that has a demon and the demon goes away and you're cleansed. But then later on, you're filled with seven more demons and the condition you are in after the cleansing is worse than if you just had one demon. He says, this is how it will be with this generation. In other words, because they're rejecting the Messiah, the condition of the nation of Israel after he goes will be worse, seven times worse than if they had accepted him. And that's a, that's a curse that's coming upon him. And of course, they were cursed. They rejected the Messiah. And Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24 and 25 how the temple will be torn down, how pregnant women will be in distress in those days, and just how terrible it would be for the nation of Israel because of the rejection. And by the way, this is the way it is with everybody who's alive today. The person who hears the gospel that has a chance to be cleansed, that has a chance to be renewed in their life, to actually receive spiritual life, if they reject the gospel, it is going to be, metaphorically speaking, seven times worse than if they had never heard the gospel at all. That's the difficulty of giving the gospel. Scripture says the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. And so every time you open up your mouth, it's like I told you, if you tell your friends and your neighbors, come to church or you give them the gospel, they will either consider you the best friend they've ever had or they will reject you completely. And the person that does that, and they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting the Spirit of God, the witness of the Spirit of God. And so you you can't take it personally, even though we do. We take it so personal when we get the rejection like that. But God calls us to do it anyhow because there are some who will receive the gospel. So that is the fate of those who reject Jesus Christ, at least back then, and also the fate of those who reject Jesus now. He goes on to say, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. (laughs) And so he was making a differentiation between those who would simply be in a genetically formed family as opposed to those who are the family of faith. God calls us his children if we do his will. Now what's the work of God? The work of God is to believe on the son whom he has sent. That is the primary thing that everyone is supposed to do to belong to the family of God. And by the way, you have to be born into the family of God. Remember John chapter 3 and Nicodemus. Nicodemus showed up and said, you know what? Hey, what's going on, Jesus? This is Bill's version, Bill's international version. And he says, what's going on, Jesus? And Jesus tells him, hey, you know, you need to be born again to get into heaven. And he's going, what are you talking about? I cannot return to my mother's womb and be born again, John chapter 3. And... Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? That was kind of like, you're not very smart. You're a teacher of Israel. You know, he was kind of chastising him, admonishing him, not rebuking him, but admonishing him like, you should know these things. That you have to be born into the kingdom just like you're born into this life. And people get confused about that. What do you mean born again? Back in the 80s, I remember there were billboards 
the billboards would say, I found it. And it was this big campaign that was put out. I don't know if it was by the Billy Graham uh, campaign or the Crusades or if it was Bill Bright and Campus Christ, I, Campus Life. I don't know which one it was. But they put all these billboards out there that said, uh, I found it. And, you're spo- and there'd be a little marking at the bottom where to look or who to look up. And of course, it was a Christian organization that was putting it out there. I found what you're supposed to ask. I found Jesus Christ. Now, that's from our perspective. Jesus always knew where we were. We just found out that he was right there. And, and so it's this, you found it, you became, and you look it up, and you're supposed to be born again. Well, what is born again? We are first, and Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3, we're first born of water. Now, what does that mean? It means the woman who is going to give birth to a baby, she has this amniotic sac inside of her tummy, and the water breaks. And all of a sudden, there's a flood of water. Born of water, you must be born of water, and born of the Spirit. So first, physically, we're born of water. Our mom... She gave birth to all of us, right? And the baby was born, and there's joy, and there's happiness, and the little baby looking up at mommy, and you say, oh, how cute, and the mom forgets her labor pains, and it's just all wonderful and cuddly, take the baby home, and grows up, right? And you think, that's wonderful. And then when somebody gets born spiritually, we say, praise the Lord, that's great, that's wonderful. But to be born again means you have to accept Christ. When you accept Christ, you're born into his family and therefore are his mother, brother, and sister. You are of the immediate family. It doesn't say cousin. Do you recognize that? It doesn't say aunt. No, you are the direct family. It's not the second and third cousins, aunts, uncles, and you know by marriage, this father-in-law. It isn't all of that. You are a direct member of his family if you say, Jesus, save me. That's it. You become born again at that point. And you talk to some Christians, and they'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. <laughs> Excuse me? There is no such animal which is out there, or no such person. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you have given your life to him, you are born again. You are born from above. Some people translate it like that. But that is how you get into the family of God. Nobody who is not a part of his family, who is excluded from his family, will get into heaven. You won't be able to go to the house of God. Except for the judgment at the great white throne, then you're excluded to everlasting darkness and contempt and punishment. And we don't want that for anybody. That's why we speak up. That's why we are on the road to maturity. That's why we're able to give a reason for the hope that lies within for those who are seeking after God. But most will not seek after God as we get to the next chapter, chapter 13. These are the kingdom parables. These kingdom parables are enlightening. But they are stories about earthly things, things that happen here on earth, little stories about farming and seed and birds and dirt and things like that Jesus talks about. Now, he starts speaking at this point only in parables for a few reasons. The reason Jesus spoke in parables is first, he was communicating through the parables in order to continue to reveal truth to his disciples. The disciples and the common people would have understood the stories that he's speaking. Sometimes they didn't, 
And sometimes they were a little dense and it had to be explained to them. And second, Jesus spoke in parables because of the unwillingness of the people to receive the plain message of the kingdom of God that was presented. So he, he would talk in stories. And you'd have to figure out the story. What, what exactly are you saying in this story? And third, he spoke in parables in order to fulfill Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, which reads, He said, go and tell the people this. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of the people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And this is a case where God is being sarcastic. And we think, oh, sarcasm is not good. No, God is sarcastic all the way through Scripture. And this is one particular case where he is. These, these people, he's talking about them, they will not believe. Therefore, shut up their ears, blind their eyes, and they won't see. And let's not do this because, you know, they might see after all. But they, he's saying that they won't. And because they won't, he says, fine. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. You're going to be blinded, and you're going to be deaf. And your understanding is going to flee from you. I'm going to give you exactly what you desire. And so this is why Jesus spoke in parables. The truths of the kingdom were to be hidden to those who would not believe, and the truth of the kingdom would be revealed through the stories to those who would believe. Now, the knowledge, it says, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. This is in chapter 13, verse 11. This is, kind of explains why the parables are being talked about here. Now, the parables that we're going to go over, the parable of the sower of the seed, the wheat and the weeds, the mustard seed, the yeast, the hidden treasure, the pearl, the net, all of those are in chapter 13. And you never thought that if somebody's talking about the kingdom of heaven, it's like a net. It's like the fish in the net. No, it's like wheat and weeds. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And when you first hear that, you go, what? No, it's like seed that's thrown on the rocky ground. What What do you mean? I have no idea. And the leaders of the Jews who are blinded would say, what's he talking about farming for? Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> on my trek to being a Christian, I've mentioned this book before. Do you guys remember Jonathan Livingston Siegel? A few of you maybe. That book was inspirational to me before I was a Christian. I read it, and <clears throat> it's about a seagull. And it's about a seagull who, it's Hindu philosophy is what it is. It's still a fun story to read. It's a good book that you go through as far as reading the material. But the, the truth of it is far removed, but the book was good. <clears throat> and it talks about the seagull who decides he wants to go higher and faster than all the other seagulls and and he practices doing this, going faster and faster and faster. And when he's falling to the ground, then he's going so fast, his feathers are being ripped off of him. He's basically disintegrating. And when he comes to, he's gone to the next level. And all the other seagulls are there saying, welcome. Where all these other seagulls, where he came from, they're not interested in progressing. And it's the Hindu philosophy that's there. And I thought, wow, what a, this is a great read. And the book that comes after that, The Messiah, it, it was really a good read. 
not truthful, but it was a good read. And so I read through it, and I'm reading about this seagull, Jonathan Livingston Seagull, and it's all good. It's a wonderful story. It's great. I give it to my brother. I say, you have to read this. This is inspirational. There's messages in here. And I went to him later. I said, so did you read the book? He goes, yeah. I said, what was it about? He goes, a seagull. (laughs) And I'm going, no, there's truth behind it. It's so good. You know, like I said, it's a good read, but it's not the truth of the Bible. All truth is God's truth, but not all truth is in the Bible. And there was a lot of truth in that book. And there was just enough poison to make it toxic to those who would not follow after Christ. I'm telling you that up front, but it was good, but he didn't quite get it. You know, and these are the parables, the same thing. You tell the parables and the Pharisees would have been going, he's talking about a farmer that went out to sow some seed and, and they just didn't get it. And not even the disciples got that first one. They're going, what, you know, kind of what, what's up with this sowing of the seed? And we'll be getting into that. So he would take an analogy from nature and he would speak of a spiritual truth and it was meant to hide the truth, but also to reveal the truth. And this is the difference between secrets and mysteries. For instance, as I said, a mystery is something that is previously hidden, not even hinted at, like the church. But a secret is something that is known, but the meaning of it is kind of vague. It's, you're really not able to discern what it was. And so Jesus is talking about secrets when he talks about these parables, there are secrets that we need to find out that Jesus reveals to us. These are not mysteries that he's talking in these particular parables that come up. Now, going on with this, <clears throat> I want to give you an example of something that we just did. As a church, we just did this. Now, I'm going to say this, and I want you to tell me if you can discern what I'm talking about. Okay? Listen carefully. Termination of the parallel points containing the cross member supports at the vertical rise need to be conjoined in triplicate at each point of parallel and vertical intersection while maintaining plumb and shear. What am I talking about that we just did? What? Not worship. Bunk beds. Yeah. Who, Who said that? That was good. Let me say it again. This is about bunk beds. Termination of the parallel points containing the cross member supports at the vertical rise need to be conjoined and triplicate at each point of parallel and vertical intersection while maintaining plumb and shear. Yeah, bunk beds. Exactly. But you, you see, you see how it's kind of hidden what's in there? I'm, of course I'm talking about bunk beds. Who would not get that if you're spiritually discerning the same thing applies with the parables? The parables come to the individuals, the meaning's kind of hidden, but as soon as you say bunk bed, you go, oh, yeah, I get it. Okay, so that's how parables work. Now, let's, let's go on with this. <clears throat> and remember, the Jews, here's one passage. Jude, John chapter 10, verse 24, the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus responded and said, though I have been speaking figuratively a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. So they understood, they did not understand what Jesus was communicating after going into all these parables and the understanding would come in the future. He goes, I'm going to tell you plainly. And guess when that's going to take place at the great white throne judgment. 
Jesus is going to speak very plainly. So here we have the first parable, the sower of the seed or the soils. Depends on who puts the heading in the Bible. Matthew chapter 13 says, Then he told many of... uh, told them many things in parables saying a farmer went out to sow his seed verse 4 and as he was scattering the seed some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up some fell in the rocky places where it did not have much soil it sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow but when the sun came up the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root other seed fell among the thorns which grew up and choked the plants Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now he goes on later and he talks about the uh, explanation for this. But let's just kind of divide it up here. What, What is taking place? Well, first you have the seed, which is the word of God. He tells us later on. We have the birds which represent Satan. We have the soils, which is the heart of the individual. Now you have the path, you have the rocky soil, you have the soil with weeds, and you have fertile soil. That's why some people call this the parable of the soils rather than the parable of the sower of the seed. The one who sows the seed is Jesus himself. And so let's stick all these pieces of the puzzle together. When the farmer went out to sow his seed... When Jesus goes out to give the word of God, the word of God on the heart of the individual sometimes land on what is known as the stony or the hard path, the compacted soil. Satan or the birds come along and take that word of God away from the individual who has heard it because their heart is hard. They do not receive the seed, the word of God just as the path does not receive the seed. The path has to be cultivated up in order to receive the seed. That person definitely never receives the gift of salvation. That is clear from the passage. The next one is the stony ground. Now, if you've been on any of the mesas around here, if you go to Otay Mesa, if you go to Kearney Mesa, if you go to Mira Mesa, there are these stones, and you see them all around San Diego and landscapes now, the cobble cobblestone la mesa the cobblestone is like this or like this or like this and there are more stones than dirt and if you try to dig in that you are going to have one difficult time if you go through las coches here it's all sand it's a riverbed but if you go to the mesa it's all rock everywhere so imagine if you're in la mesa and you're in your backyard and you go i want to plant a garden And you go get this rototiller and you put the rototiller in your backyard and that thing's just jumping like a horse at a rodeo. You know, you're, I can't stop that. I can't get it in the ground because you have these huge pieces of cobble in the ground. Well, Jesus says it's like that. If you put seeds in that kind of soil, guess what's going to happen? When the plant starts to rise up and then the scorching sun of July, August, and September come, The plant that is in that, it has no root. There's very little soil. It's going to be scorched by the heat, and it's going to die. The cue about this is, or the key thing, is that the seed germinates, which means the individual who hears the gospel, 
They receive it with eagerness. They go, this is great. And we'll go through this explanation later. But he, they say, well, this is wonderful. And they attend church. And they grow for a season. But then they wither and they fall away. Now that withering is caused by persecution. In the New Testament times, the persecution came in the form of being killed or being tortured. For us, it's being rejected, at least in this country. If you go to the 1040 window, you could still be killed or tortured or maimed for life because of the gospel. And you, you would recant and say, that's it. I'm becoming a Muslim because they're persecuting me. I'm not going to go through the persecution. And that person falls away. They are not saved. How long is the germination process? Well, it could be years. They could be sitting in church for years, growing, but never producing fruit. And then something comes along, and they fall away. The next type is the weeds. You, you have tilled ground. It looks nice. You're going to throw some seed down there, and all of a sudden, it's not coming up the way you thought. If you were to take the toll road from Highway 94 down to the Otay Mesa crossing, that toll road that's there, <clears throat> used to be a large ranch in their Otay Ranch, and they cultivated wheat this time of year. I just drove past there, and it looked like there was more mustard than there was more wheat. And the mustard is growing big, and that mustard can get to be 8, 10 feet tall, and it can choke out anything else that is growing if they planted the wheat seed. I won't know if there's wheat seed in there until it comes time to harvest. But that's what happens with the individual who receives the word of God. It grows up amongst the wheat, and when the wheat is in amongst the weeds, the wheat becomes weak and frail, and the fruit never comes to fruition where it's edible. The plant comes up, and it's choked out by the weeds. That choking out is the cares of this life and the pursuit of riches. In other words, it's doing everything else but studying to show yourself approved, going to Bible study, uh, ministering to the poor and the widows and their affliction. You decide, I have other things I want to do rather than being do, doing God's business. And so that individual, their faith is choked out. It does not produce fruit. That person is also not saved. Three people out of four in this case, in this parable, do not make it to heaven. One quarter, 25% of the people who ever receive the word of God, according to this parable, ever make it to heaven. Now, I don't know if those are the real numbers. How many billion people do we have? You know, if we had 12 billion people, we only have eight. But if we had 12 billion people, only 3 billion would make it. The rest would perish if the numbers are true according to this parable. And the last one is the individual who has prepared their heart. They have sought after God. God, are you real? Are you there? I want to know your will. Will you please reach out to me and Tell me what's going on. I've had that experience when I was very young. I was seeking after God. I didn't understand. My question was, if we just grow up and die, what's the point? Why? I mean, futility of life. I, at 12, I'm thinking this. 
and God answered me. And he came, he gave me the gospel and I got saved because I, I wanted to know God and his will and what's the purpose of life? That's one of the great questions of life. Why am I here? What's the purpose? And so that person, and you are like that as well, you've sought after God, that seed plants in your life and it produces a crop 160 or 30 times what is sown. And that person is saved. And when they get to heaven, they have a rich reward that is up there. The question for us as I close here, I only have about two minutes. Which one are you? Are you the fertile soil? And there's characteristics of the fertile soil, which we'll get into next week. Are you the one that is open and receptive to God's word, letting it change you, letting the fruit take root and grow and produce the fruit? Or are you the one that says, no, I got too much to do in this life. I'm not interested. Fellowship, eh, you know, you can take it or leave it. Oh, I got some money to make. I can't be giving myself fully to God. You don't understand. I have a business. I have a family to take care of. You know, I know God's there and he provides and everything else. But I got to do this. Or do you say, no, I'm not even interested in the word. Don't even tell me about the word. That's just a bunch of blah, blah, blah. It's like all the works of antiquity. None of them are true. And, you know, it's just truth. And what is truth? Anyhow, you know, that's what Pilate said. What is truth? And and so we are one of those four. Question is, which one are you? Have you accepted Jesus Christ and willing and open to receive his word? Or are you closed off, getting choked out? Or is it dying in your life? We'll finish with this next week. Let's pray. Father, I pray that there is not a soul in here who would not have that heart that has been tilled up, ready to receive your word, letting it take root. And Father, we know this is a difficult thing because it requires us to die to our flesh. Even I, Lord, I know with everybody else in here, we don't want to die to our flesh. And we call upon you for your grace and mercy when that is the case. But Lord, we also ask that by your spirit, you would till up the ground of our heart. That you would remove the weeds that are there. That you would plant your word deep. And that it would produce fruit that is pleasing to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.